Andrew Joblin knows the value of keeping a variety of irons in the fire. Since he founded Turnbridge Equities in 2014, the firm has owned a last mile distribution center in Newburgh, New Jersey, created a popular mixed use destination in Austin, and acquired an open air retail center in Long Beach, California. This year, the company made its first foray into industrial outdoor storage with an acquisition in Los Angeles. Hi, I'm Paul Rasta, executive editor at CPE. Welcome back to Investment Matters, our podcast series featuring insights from the industry leaders who are at the center of commercial real estate investment today. Another takeaway from my conversation with Joplin is that he aims to keep looking a few years ahead of the competition. Among Turnbridge's current projects is an unusual distribution center designed for maximum efficiency in densely populated New York City. And he names the East Coast market where he sees the kind of potential that Austin offered a decade ago. Take a listen. Andrew Joblin, welcome to Investment Matters. It's really nice to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Appreciate you having me on. So Turnbridge Equities has been around for almost a decade now. Could you tell me how the company got its start? What's the sort of origin story? And and also, um, where does the company name come from? Absolutely. So I spent uh, just about 10 years at a company called Fisher Brothers based in New York City. They're obviously one of the large uh, families in the city and in the commercial real estate circles. Uh, had an incredible experience there, sort of started a senior associate and and rose up the ranks. And, um, you know, at some point in the family business, you hit a ceiling, right? And um, I learned so much there and, and have such respect for the family. And, and, and they're just wonderful people, not only in business, but philanthropy. But, um, you know, at some point you hit a ceiling when you're not a family member. And so um, the only way that I could really achieve my goals um, was either to, you know, join a, a smaller company and try to grow it or, or start my own. And, um, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit, so I decided, you know, without a real business plan, just to go out on my own and, and figure it out. And I'd always had a knack for for sourcing deals and, and finding interesting opportunities. So um, while it was an incredibly scary moment to, to walk out of a very cushy, secure job, um, in hindsight, it was probably the best decision I ever made. So um, it really started with 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 very little business plan and, and just an opportunistic mindset. Um, and uh, luckily it, it evolved into, into what it is today. With respect to the company name, I'd love to tell you a, a great story of its origin, but the the reality and honest answer is um, I was sitting around with some some friends and um, I'd come up with a list of names and I was like, what 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 is going to make me sound the most professional? And um, somehow someone came up on the list of Turnbridge. I later found out as I became a Formula One fan, um, the bridges you go over at the turns are actually called turn bridges. So I, I could have told you that's where the origin of the company name was because I I like Formula One a lot, but um, I, I found out about six years, seven years after I uh, founded the company. Well, it has a nice ring to it, and it's kind of it's kind of fun to reverse engineer the origin story, right? Because that that does seem to fit with uh, the, the way that you approach business. So, exactly. When I saw that, I saw it listed on one of the races, and I was like, "Ah, there's my origin story." <laughs> <laughs> well, let's fast forward to today and strategy in your shop. How are you adjusting your strategy right now, given all the moving parts in the capital markets and the economy? 
Um, I mean, are you turning more attention now to different asset categories than you might have a year or two ago? Are you looking more closely at any different geographic markets? So the answer is right now is it's such an uncertain time. Um, and I think the best word to describe it is, is just stagnation. There's not a lot happening right now. Transaction volumes are down. I think there's a great deal of folks that are being conservative, as are we. Um, there's a lot of folks that are just pure risk off sitting on the sidelines. We are not. Um, we, you know, we like to always stay in the flow of deals and, and at least try to find interesting opportunities despite um, what's going on with with the capital markets and the economy. Um, so, you know, I, I'd say we're proceeding with a lot of cautious, um, a, a big cautious and conservative outlook. I think we're, you know, geared up for for distress. Um, if that does come about, then I, I think we've got a long track record of, of taking advantage of that and, and, and buying notes, et cetera, and trying to drive great returns through through, through that uh, strategy. We generally always stick to our markets that we have boots on the ground, um, which are New York City, Northern Jersey, DC. Miami, Austin, Nashville, Raleigh, and LA. Um, so we don't deviate out of these markets unless there's an incredibly um, compelling reason or a big opportunity that we think is is meaningful. Um, and so asset class wise, we again like to try to stick to our knitting, particularly on the commercial side and in, in, in industrial. Um, and obviously, we we do other things that are, are less relevant to this conversation, multifamily. But um, to, to date, we haven't looked at um, much hospitality or anything of that nature. When you look ahead to the next two or three years, what kinds of investment and development opportunities do you think you're going to find the to be the most attractive? Well, it's interesting. You know, construction financing right now is 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 virtually impossible um, to obtain. Um, you know, we're lucky enough to be to be able to get it for a project we're doing in DC on the industrial side um, with uh, Apollo's insurance company called Athene. And so, if you if you talk about being able to get good construction financing in today's market, and then delivering that product in eighteen to twenty four months. That actually feels really good to us because we think the supply engine is is pretty much shut off at this point to 95% of the borrowers and, and, and active participants. So if you participate and, and look into supply constrained markets like us, we think there's a really interesting supply demand dynamic um, that's going to happen because we think obviously as, as um, you know, demand for warehouses and in, in particular in tier one markets, uh, increases and you know you really have no new supply coming online. We think that's an interesting dynamic. You know, as far out as the next you know sort of longer term and sort of the year two and three, um, I think it's a little bit of the same mindset. If we can if we can deliver projects and build through a bad market and, and come out on the other end as things start to improve, that feels pretty good to us. And then I think <clears throat> more so if you can find opportunities in distress um, that, that people get out over their skis or provide rescue capital um, over the next two or three years. We think that's an interesting um, way to sort of play it at, at a different spot in the capital stack than we normally have.
You've already started to touch on the potential challenges that could be ahead. Could you drill down a little bit more into those? What do you think is really could be some of the, the hurdles that will face the real estate industry as a whole, especially on the commercial side over the next couple of years? Um, you've already mentioned distress as a potential. What, what's on your radar right now? I mean, look, I think a lot of it's driven by interest rates, right? Real estate, um, for the vast majority of the last cycle, you could basically borrow money for free and really juice returns. And, you know, you had a lot of momentum traders in the market that would buy things, not really get into the business plan and, and add value. They would just find another buyer down the road um, that had a, you know, a more aggressive view on rent growth or something like that. So I think those momentum traders are, are that bought, you know, in the last eight, nine months um, have, definitely have some issues coming about that, that they're going to have to re-up interest reserves. A lot of folks that didn't buy um, hedges on their, on their floating rate loans um, are, are going to have much, much larger interest reserve replenishments than they had thought. And so, um, we think that is going to create an interesting dynamic. Um, clearly, on the office side, COVID and work from home has disrupted the market. Um, and then I think, it, particularly in New York City office, which we don't play in, but um, obviously no wealth, so we have an office there, there seems to be a real flight to quality now um, on the office side. You, you've had some incredible buildings like One Vanderbilt, some of the buildings in Hudson Yards. Um, that related did that really up the game from an amenity perspective. Um, and, and then you're really seeing the sort of third and sixth Avenue assets bear the brunt of that on the downside. Um, you know, someone asked me my opinion on, on, on a value of, of some of the B and C class New York city office. And, and, you know, we're, we're, we're not sure we have a mark on that right now, unless it's land value, um, you know, there's got to be huge, huge, huge capital dumped into these buildings and reimagined. And, and you know, I think, I think, I, I think, I, I believe that numbers are going to improve on on you know people returning to the office. I just don't know if it's going to be the way it was in the past. I think you're going to see, um, you know, sort of more of this roving workforce and and you know some days on, some days off. Um, and, you know, I'd like to see the five-day work week return, but I don't, I don't know if it will. We're going to be talking more in a couple of minutes about your activity in the industrial sector. You're a, a, an active and experienced industrial investor and developer. What about challenges in that sector? Is there anything that you see ahead over the next couple of years that might tend to diminish that a little bit? In, in your view, what, what do you think could be potential challenges, if any, in the industrial sector? Yeah, look, it's a great question, Paul. And and the way I like to describe the industrial sector is really, I think it it's actually two asset classes. So there's the tier one markets, and then there's everything else, tier two, three, and four markets. So tier one markets are really defined as New York City, Northern New Jersey, Washington, D.C., you could argue Miami could could be included, but that Los Angeles for sure. And those are really markets that have, have experienced through rezonings, declining supply, or have for a myriad of reasons, really um, difficult challenges in zoning that allow you to build industrial. And so you've got you've got virtually no supply. Um, and so those are the markets we focus on. Then 
the, the second sector of, of the tier two, three, and four markets, you really have no barriers to entry. Anyone can put up these big bombers. Um, and if you look at the supply story there, you know, it, it's a little frightening with, with all the activity that happened over the last two or three years and what's what's delivering over the next 18 months. So we really look at them as two separate, two separate asset classes. And back to the tier one markets, um, you know, obviously a risk there is Amazon is, is basically virtually, you know, is basically pulled back completely. Um, but you know, they, they don't make up as much as the market as people will say. Um, and and the statistics I don't have off the top of my head, but you know, they're they're a small part of, of the wheel. And um, you know, leasing activity from a myriad of different companies and tenants on the uh has been yeah, we haven't seen demand slow down um in those tier one markets yet. Uh and 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 that's high quality credit tenants. We just signed a large lease in DC with Ferguson, um, one of the largest, you know, home supply, plumbing supply businesses, credit tenant. Um, so we're still seeing good velocity. Um, we just sold a northern Jersey asset in Newark that to, to Heinz. And you know, I don't think we ever had a space available for more than three months there. So it, it was just really heavy leasing velocity of these assets. New York City, um, same thing, right? If you looked at Long Island City 10 years ago, ton of warehouses, you look at it now, it's a, it's a ton of towers. So when that got rezoned, you saw declining supply of, of um, warehouses because you could go build three, 400, 500 unit uh, multifamily buildings. And, um, and so that was a higher, better use of the time. So we like that dynamic where, where supply is, is shrinking. I'd like to hear more about your professional journey, Andrew. How did you get your start in the business? And when did real estate emerge on your radar? For example, you studied finance at the George Washington University, but were you already thinking about a real estate career in school or did that happen a little bit later? No, it's funny. I, um, I used to spend a lot of time going up to New York City and, and sort of between 04 when I graduated in 06. And um, I had a couple of close friends who were investment bankers and I was desperate to be an investment banker. Like that's huh. all I wanted to be. I wanted to grind, grind it out. I thought it was so cool. These guys were working 16 hour days and they were going out at night. They were making a ton of money. And it, it just looked, it looked like the ultimate job to me. And, and uh, unfortunately, they were recruiting at Ivy League schools and not GW. And so I never even, I don't even think I sniffed an interview, never mind uh, had an opportunity. So I, I defaulted. I remember that day I graduated, I, I moved up to New York immediately. I started showing up to my brother. He worked for a very small real estate guy in New York, and he, he ran the West Coast office. And I just started showing up at the office, trying to learn the business, listening to the conference calls, picking up the buzzwords. And after a few weeks, I remember they said, oh, you're, you're picking this up pretty quick. Why don't you go meet with some, some lender relationships of ours? And so um, I went on a couple of interviews. I was lucky enough to get a few offers and ended up at CW Capital um, doing structured finance. Um, working for a guy named Kent Daver, who's actually become a, a good friend and lender. He's at Starwood now um, and uh, got my start with them. And it's a really interesting way to learn the business because you understand, you know, it's your first entree and you really understand everything from a risk perspective. 
and you want to know what can go wrong versus how to drive the value. I think that's a good first entree to real estate for those that are, you know, considering a career in it. Um, is understand sort of all your downside before you get into how I can make the most money. Now you mentioned Ken at CW Capital. Are there any other mentors along the way that have been especially influential for you? Absolutely. The, the list is pretty long, but um, Andrew Mathias at, at SL Green has, has become one of my closest friends and he's been a mentor probably since I met him in, in 09 and, and um, I speak to him at least a couple times a week and, and to have a sounding board like him is, is, is just incredible because he's seen it all. He's been through it all. He's got great relationships. Um, he's got, he's got great perspective. Um, and he also has a, a great appreciation of, of, of sort of how we view the world, very basis focused, um, thinking about the downside constantly. Um, and so when I'm able to call someone like that and run a deal by him, like that's a huge advantage that not a lot of people get to do. Um, Keith Gelb has been another one at, at Rock Point who's, who's been a wonderful mentor. Um, you know, Keith more on the, per, on the personal side and, um, you know, Keith's just one of those guys that does everything the right way and he's got a wonderful family. And, and I always looked up to him in that sense. And, um, I wanted to sort of model my personal life after him because he's, He's such a good guy and has got such a wonderful family. Let's go back to Turnbridge's current activities. Could you tell us more about one of your noteworthy current projects, which is the Bronx Logistics Center? And that's the 1.3 million square foot facility you're building in New York City right now. For the, the benefit of our listeners, this is an, a project in the Hunts Point neighborhood of the Bronx. It was topped out last fall, and it also has the distinction of being the largest industrial development currently under construction in all of New York City. And one thing I wanted to ask you about as well, a little more specifically, is it also happens to be a multi-story project. What are the main advantages of building multiple stories in a logistics facility? So first to start to give you a little background on the deal, and uh, my partner, Ryan Nelson, really was the 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 the, the brains behind this operation and, and really the guy that drove this deal. And it's, it's an incredible story because he got very close with a gentleman that owned an interest in, in the first property. There was five total that, that Ryan um, assembled and, you know, he built the relationship. He went and saw this gentleman a bunch of times, was able to, to buy this first piece really opportunistically. And then to Ryan's credit, he went around and, and bought, four other properties from four different owners that really rounded out one of the, I think one of the most unique assemblage opportunities in, in New York city, right? It was 14 acres. What was really interesting about this, and I'm going to get to this as I answer the second part of the question is there was substantial grade change um, on the site, which allowed this multi-story it's two levels of, of warehouse, but to have take advantage of some of that grade change. So it isn't, it isn't like a multi-story we're going to go in and, and we can go through the plans and show you and, and, and folks can see sort of from the, the Bruckner as they drive by. But um, the design is super unique. So it feels like it's actually two grade level warehouses almost. It has truck courts in the middle. It's got it's got ramps off the grade. So um, it's really cutting edge and pioneering. But from a tenant perspective, if you're leasing, say, the second floor only, 
it really feels like you you're on the ground floor. You're not going to see any any really sort of drawbacks um, from a user perspective being on the second level versus the first. And um, you know, we're using a, a group Arco design and build that really helped us design some of this. They're one of the largest in the country, um, and they're a fantastic uh, a fantastic group. So. Um, Ryan also brought them in and, and they've been a huge value add because they help, we think, design, um, you know, this, this incredible project. So um, when you do develop a multi-story distribution facility like Bronx Logistics Center, first of all, is, is that still pretty unusual in New York City, at least? That's kind of been my impression that there really have not been many multi-story logistics facilities to date. In, in the New York metro area, is, is that correct? So I think there's been, there's a, probably two I know of. Um, one is complete, um, Innovo, Andrew Chung, uh, did one just north of us. And he leased the first floor to Amazon. And I don't know if he's leased the second floor yet. Um, and I'm not familiar with his design and, and how that all works and, and um, if, it's, if it's similar, but I know um, another gentleman named Dove Hurt, I believe, has one planned as well. Um, and I'm sure you're going to start seeing it, it happen um, more and more. It, it, you sort of see it in, in really congested areas in, in Asia, um, and it's worked well there. Um, I think it's we're definitely not the first, um, but there's not many of them. So um, the jury's out um, from a user perspective, but we think and we've 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 got i think a, a world-class team to design ours in a way that doesn't really feel like multi-story right it feels like uh each one is its own grade level um and you know i, I think others will probably try to try to follow suit um and figure out how you can get trucks in and, and big things that without disruption to you know your other tenants so from your perspective is one of the main benefits of going a couple of stories up that it's just a, a more efficient and effective use of the site. Yeah. And also we've got a supply issue in New York city. Um, it's, it's virtually impossible to find sites like this. Um, and when you do find sites like this and you have the ability and the, the acreage to be able to have proper access for trucks to a second story to second level, um, with offering, you know, sort of all the bells and whistles of, of, of a grade level facility, you know, you should do it. You can't just go buy a postage stamp site and, and try to do multi-story on it because it won't work. Well, I'd like to touch on at least one other market where Turnbridge has a notable footprint. For example, in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, you have got the Creamery Project in downtown Raleigh, which is an interesting mixed-use project, of course, and you also own the Mutual Tower in Durham. So what is it that attracted you to the Research Triangle in the first place and to these two cities in particular? Sure. So the Research Triangle is really interesting to us. Um, we obviously were as far as the national firm goes an early uh, an early entrant into the Austin market and we we sort of saw what was going on there and felt really interested to us in 2015 um and then as you look at Raleigh and the triangle today it feels a hell of a lot like Austin did 12 
15 years ago. Um, it's way behind in development, but it actually has a higher median income than Austin does within the triangle, which I find incredibly interesting. But multifamily and office rents are somewhere between 25 and 40% below Austin today. So that, that feels interesting to us. You're starting to see because a place like Austin has gotten so expensive and, and Nashville's right behind it, that companies are looking for really strong education bases that have a lower cost of living. And so you've seen Google um, move their artificial intelligence headquarters there. Um, it didn't get as much press as I thought, but Apple's East Coast headquarters is, is, is there. Um, and they're building something new as well. Um, and then Meta, before all the layoffs, I know was in the market for a couple hundred thousand square feet as well. So, you know, you, you throw all those dynamics together and then you look at, okay, cost of living is good. Then you start pulling from Duke, North Carolina State, which has an incredible engineering program, University of North Carolina. Then down the road, you've got Wake Forest, you've got Elon, you've got Guilford. You know, you've got all of a sudden, you've got all these education places in the state that produce really good students. And for the first time ever, they're actually staying there. They, that, that whole crop of talented students used to move, immediately move up to New York. And the statistics have now changed where the majority of them are actually staying local. Um, so you mix all that di all those dynamics in and, and you know for us that feels like a really good investing opportunity um, and feels like we're getting into Austin you know 12 to 15 years ago which which would, would have borne incredible results. Now it sounds like that you're really a little bit ahead of the curve on, in this respect and that you've got the the potential for even more of a of a hub with uh, a lots of intellectual capital. And, yeah, uh, that this... agreed. And, and, you know, we, we look at the triangle sort of somewhat agnostically between the each, each you know, pillar of it. Um, Raleigh and Durham have been two, two that we're active in. Um, we haven't done anything in Chapel Hill yet. Um, but, the, you know, like I said, the demographics are great. We think it's a, a high growth market. Um, all that being said, leasing like everywhere has come 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 down quite a bit and, and the velocity is the same but um we've signed a few deals in mutual tower mutual tower is one one of our distress plays uh from covid that we acquired the note on and, and ended up taking control because the borrower couldn't couldn't perform um so we're in that at an incredible basis we've we've renovated the building and and brought it up to a higher standard um, we've got some good credit in there um and so it's uh, it, it's it's been a good asset for us. Great. Well, to round things out, Andrew, I'd like to move on to one of my favorite parts of the Investment Matters series, CEOs off the clock. We can't work 24-7, even though it sure seems like we try sometimes. So when it's time for a break for you, is there anything in particular that you like to do just to get a change of pace? Yeah, I mean, it, it it starts early in the morning. I'm a I'm a cold plunge fanatic. So uh, <laughs> I every single morning within 15 minutes of waking up, I I jump into a a small pool that's 38 degrees, and I sit in there from five to seven minutes, and it's like drinking 20 cups of coffee. <laughs> um, and then it's time to hang out with my wife and two children, and we spend the morning together until they go to school and sometimes I drive them. Um, 
and then you know it's back to work and then after work again kids are two and three years old so there's a there's a lot of time with them i'm also playing uh a lot of this sport that's become very popular down in miami called paddle um some call it padel it's uh it's origins are in mexico but it's it's really become super popular in places like spain and argentina it's actually the fastest growing sport in the world pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the united states this is a more of a hybrid between tennis and squash with glass walls. And it's, uh, I play a lot of that. And, and most of the people in the real estate business in Miami have gotten into it. And so it's a, it's a much more social sport than tennis. It's faster paced. You can play with people at different levels and the games are really fun and competitive. Um, and then, uh, and then lastly, I, I just like to go to good restaurants and eat good food. Um, with, with close friends. So, um, you know, it, not, nothing crazy, um, you know, obviously Miami boating is, 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 a, is, a, is a really nice way to see the city as well and some enjoyable times. But uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Well, it sounds like you've got some really nice opportunities for uh, recreation there, Andrew. And uh, as, as far as that sport, it could be the, the next big thing, right? Right. Coming is. Up we should, that we, we got to get you out of play fall. Yeah. <laughs> It might be, uh, if you don't mind, somebody who's who's uh, feeling pretty creaky these days. But that sounds like it's a lot of fun. It is. If you got any tennis background whatsoever, it uh, you'll you'll pick it up quickly. Well, I was really bad at table tennis. Does that count? (laughs) Well, Andrew, I think we're going to leave it there for today. But I really appreciate you taking the time to visit, and it was great hearing about all of your activities at Turnbridge Equities and. and some of your own professional journey. And uh, thank you for making time to join us today on Investment Matters. Really appreciate it. Of course, Paul. Hey, thanks so much for having me and uh, appreciate you even uh, taking the time to, uh, to talk with us. 